Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we are still discussing the Best Picture nominees from the 91st Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. Feels like we're leading in a little bit of a direction on that already, given what has made it through into this next episode. So we discussed eight losers last week. We have eight winners this week. And how many of our official nominees have made it through to this second round? Two. (laughs) So yes, we don't want to give away whether or not we thought the Oscars got it wrong. But given that the winner went out in the first round and where we are, make your your own bets. Make, Make a guess. We'll leave it up to you to decide. So we are going to run you back through the information about each of these new matchups to remind mm-hmm. everybody what our movies are. And then as we read out the, the matchups, we will pick who our winner is for each matchup. And if we agree, it's through. If we disagree, we'll find a way to pick a winner. <laughs> yep, that's what we'll do. All right. And then in this episode, we'll be discussing the four losers. In next episode, there will be the final end four. of the tournament the final four and then the final final and we will have a champion at the end of all of this oh my gosh so exciting mm-hmm. all right so our first matchup we have the number one seed eighth grade a coming of age story about a girl graduating from the eighth grade it stars elsie fisher it was directed and written by Bo burnham and it was nominated for zero it's up against our eighth seed if beale street could talk a romance about a man falsely accused of rape and his partner who tries to clear his name. It stars Kiki Lane, Stefan James, and Regina King. It was written and directed by Barry Jenkins. Nominated for three, it won one. Best Supporting Actress, Regina King. <sighs> okay. One, two, two three. If Beale, if Beale Street, Street could, could talk. talk. All right, let's okay. just go with that. I can't think about yeah. this. <laughs> As you might tell, we've got some tough matchups in this round and some very different movies up against each other, which, yeah, you know, to be fair, makes it hard to compare in the brain. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've all seen Eighth Grade and It Feels Street Could Talk, but they're not similar. No. All right. That brings us to our next matchup, our number two seed, Paddington 2, a family film about a young bear who was framed for stealing a pop-up book. It stars Ben Wishaw and Hugh Grant. It was directed by Paul King, written by Paul King and Simon Farnaby. It was nominated for zero. Hmm. And that faces our 10 seed, Burning, a Korean thriller about a young man who reconnects with a girl from his youth. It stars Yu Ah-in, Stephen Yun, and Jong Jong So, directed by Lee Chang Dong and written by Oh Jung Mi and Lee Chang Dong. It was nominated for zero. One, <laughs> two. <laughs> Three, Paddington Paddington 2. Okay. How does one even enter into a conversation about comparing these movies? I mean, I'm fine with Paddington 2. Okay. To me, (laughs) I was like, I I will get to a coin flip on some of these because (laughs) I I can't feasibly make an argument. I'm fine. Either way. Yeah, that's good. There is a certain amount of joy descending Paddington through to the final I think that is partially what's happening. Okay. Okay. Our next matchup, 
Our number three seed, Can You Ever Forgive Me? A drama based on a true story about a writer who forges literary letters. It stars Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. It's directed by Marielle Heller. It was written by Nicole Hall of Center and Jeff Witte. Nominated for three, it won zero. It faces our 11th seed, The Favorite, a historical comedy about two women vying for the affections of British monarch Queen Anne. It stars Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, and Rachel Weiss. Directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. It was nominated for nine, and it won one. Best Actress, Olivia Coleman. Okay. One, one two, two, three. three the, the favorite. favorite. Good. Okay. <laughs> and our final matchup. Final matchup. Our number four seed, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, an animated film about Miles Morales, a teen from Brooklyn that develops powers after being bitten by a radioactive spider. It stars Shameek Moore, Jake Johnson, and Haley Steinfeld. It was directed by Bob Persichetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. It was written by Phil Lord and Rodney Rothman, nominated for one and won one Best Animated Feature. And it faces up against our fifth seed, Black Panther, a superhero movie about the leader of a fictional African nation struggling with how to lead his country after the death of his father. It stars Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, and Lupita Nyong'o. It was directed by Ryan Coogler and written by Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole. Nominated for seven, it won three. Best Costume Design, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design. One, One, two, two, three. three. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. We made it through, guys. We did. That was a rough round of selections. I don't know. I mean, yeah, some of them absolute toss-ups. A good number, absolute toss-ups. But you know what that means. This episode's going to be good. We're talking about losers. a love fest. Which is great. What's not to like about a love fest? We do that so rarely on this show. Start with eighth grade. Eighth grade is not a complicated story. It's about a girl, as we said, who is about to graduate eighth grade. She's in her last week or so of school. She's introverted. She doesn't seem to have any friends at school. But as a hobby, she records these YouTube videos that give advice about how to live your life. She is being raised by a single father. Her mother left when she was a young kid. And the movie is really about her navigating life as she's making this transition to high school and kind of ending her time in middle school, not how she would have hoped. The mother of a popular girl who knows her father invites her to a pool party at the popular girl's house for the girl's birthday. She decides to go. And while she's there, she meets the girl's cousin, who's this very friendly kid. But also at the party is the boy she has a crush on, the popular boy she has a crush on who pays no attention to her. And ultimately, she has a bad time at the party. She gives the girl a birthday present that the girl does not care for at all. She tries to do karaoke at the party, but it's not really like well received. She pretty much has a a bad time, even though she's really trying to put herself out there. She is. She's following her own advice. So we're cutting back and forth through our YouTube videos where she's giving this advice. And her YouTube videos aren't getting a lot of views, but she's acting on her own advice. She's throughout the movie trying to get the attention of this boy. There's this part where they have this thing they do where the kids go to the high school for a day to shadow a senior to kind of get the hang of what high school is going to be like. And she meets this senior girl who's really nice, really friendly, who's like, I didn't have a lot of friends in middle school. And then I got to high school. I've made the best friends of my life. The girl says, oh, please keep in touch. And she does. She ends up going out to the mall with all these kids. And she's 
it's kind of sort of fitting in. She's still being kind of quiet and reserved, but she's there. She's driving back with the girl and one of her male friends, and they drop the high school girl off first. And the boy doesn't physically assault her, but he does sexually harass her. And obviously she comes home and she's very upset. And this is sort of a breaking point for her where she's she's like, this isn't working. I keep trying and it's not working. There's a very beautiful scene where she gets her father to help her burn her hopes and dreams in the backyard. But she has this very touching moment with him where obviously he communicates to her that he loves her and is proud of her. And she decides to, she ends her YouTube channel, right? At the end, she was like, I've been yeah, giving I think you she all this advice. Makes, she makes a final video and says yeah. that, like, I'm not actually as cool as I'm pretending to be. <laughs> yes. I'm going to stop doing this. So she stops doing her YouTube channel. But in the end, she sort of finds a new way. Like, she tells off the mean girls who have been mean to her all year. She seems to be no longer interested in, in the boy she had a crush on. And she decides to have dinner with that friendly boy she met at the pool party, who's really sweet. And maybe they'll be friends. And that's kind of eighth grade. Tell me about it. This was not your first time seeing this one, right? No, I saw this when it came out. I love this movie. (laughs) This is such a great movie. It's very small and intimate. And there's not a lot that happens in it. But you really feel connected to her she's so vulnerable elsie fisher who plays her is fantastic and it, there's just this great universal thing of feeling like you don't fit in and what that's like tied in with a more specific thing about social media and like how it is affecting kids and what it's like to grow up like this and how isolating it is it's, not, it's already isolating enough to be in middle school and then <laughs> to have also the yeah. expectations of social media on top of it it's really fascinating it just it's hard because it's a hard period to go through but it also leaves you feeling really warm her dad is so lovely and very supportive and you get through this gauntlet feeling like she's gonna be okay hopefully right like that it's good that it doesn't end on this horrible downbeat about how society is ruined because of this it's really emotional it's really subtle it's great the scene where she's talking to her dad at the fire makes made me cry when i watched it the first time and made me cry again this oh, time boy. that, that um, scene fucked me up yeah i mean she she is so separated from her dad because her dad all throughout it is trying to reach out to her and have a good relationship and he clearly loves her so much and he's always trying to like tell jokes and connect and she's like dad stop even talking to me like she's got her headphones in at dinner and it doesn't even it's mortifying for her to even speak (laughs) to her Mm -hmm. father and so then they have this moment and she says to him that if she had a daughter like herself, it would make her sad all the time. <laughs> and she's like, are you sad because I'm your daughter? And he tells her like, of course not. You're so amazing. I wish you could see how amazing you are. I'm happy and proud to be your dad all the time. And so then they have this bonding. But you're just like, that is a crusher <laughs> of a scene. Oh, my God. But thank God, because the only thing that's going to help her through this is human connection, right? The way she escapes from it is to actually have this moment with her dad where they can share with each other in a way they haven't been able to share all movie. And it's just lovely. It's a lovely movie. What did you think of it? I loved it, too. I thought it was so good. And like, I know it's the ultimate old person thing to say of like, 
I can't imagine growing up today. Oh, it was so much better back in my day. But truly, the way social media is for kids seems so hard. I think I just feel sympathetic, right? Like, yeah. And kind of glad that I didn't have to grow up in that soup. And then it's interesting too, right? Like, I'm a person who has significant issues with social anxiety. So the way she's consistently putting herself out there, I was like, this is incredible. Honestly, she's incredible. She's so brave. Going and trying things and really making an effort. But yeah, there's some scenes in this movie that are, they all work. The scene where she's in the back of the car with that boy is so scary. It's crazy how scary that is. It's so scary. And then I also, but I also love the beat when she comes home and it's silent and she's freaking out. And again, her dad is trying to connect her and she's run into her room. She's knocked stuff around. You can't really see her. She's kind of obscured by the bed and you see her dad just trying to literally reach out to her and hug her. I found it very powerful. The scene where she's trying to really get the attention of the stupid boy. I love the way Bo Burnham shoots this stupid Every time the boy comes on screen, boy. it's so hilarious because it yeah. becomes this slow-mo <laughs> music playing and yes. he's like so stupid. <laughs> and yeah, there's this horrific scene where she they're like they're also doing this shooter drill, which is another the school shooter stuff. Very yeah. like modern teen thing, although we did that when we were in school. We were far enough along that we still had school shooter drills. But she crawls over to this boy. She likes because she heard that the girl he was dating wouldn't send him new pics. And she tries to talk to him and be like, oh, I have all these racy pics on my phone. And yeah, I give blowjobs. And it's like, oh, God, honey, don't. Not for this boy. Not yeah. ever. <laughs> not ever. But certainly not for this boy. And you're a, such a little child. Yeah. <laughs> like, just no, 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 no. It's so hard. But yeah, the the burning the hopes and dreams scene, I was I was crying pretty hard. Pretty hard yeah. cry. Pretty it's hard cry in that good. one. Well, because he's um, put you through the ringer beforehand because it's right on the heels of her going through the thing in the back of the car with the teenage boy, which is like so hard to get through. <laughs> yes. It's obviously bad enough. It's a bad situation. But the dread of how much danger she's in and yes. how much worse things could get is hanging over you (laughs) through the whole thing. And the fact that she escapes sort of unscathed, (laughs) like compared to what could have happened, is such a relief. But the stress of that scene and then to follow it up with the catharsis of the fire scene. Oh, oh, Mm -hmm. it's a real good movie. To your point, too, the end message is important because this is the thing with kids, right? One of the plot devices, which I didn't mention, is they've uncovered a time capsule that they buried for themselves in sixth grade. And she goes back and she watches the video. And, you know, again, those are her hopes and dreams. Like she has all these expectations of what's going to happen in middle school, none of which were met. And then she records another video for herself at the end of high school that's, you know, maybe more realistic, right? And also, I think- hopeful. Still helpful, but also I think has this message, which, again, I think is really hard for kids, which just because things are bad now doesn't mean they'll always be bad. And I think because kids lack perspective, they can get caught up on this is how things are going to be forever. And it's like, no, things are going to change. And it's hard. It's really, really hard. But it it won't always be like this. Yeah, that video she leaves for herself at the end is great because it's still so hopeful. And she's like, I hope that everything is amazing for you in high school. And I hope you've made so many new friends. And I hope this and I hope that. And then at the end, she's sort of like, but if you haven't, that's okay, too. And then you're going to go off to college and things will happen for you then. Like, it's just. But then she has that nice dinner of chicken nuggets with that dorky magic boy. And you're like, oh, this is nice. 
It's really nice. Oh, Bo Burnham. He did what a good a job. Film debut. It's excellent. All right. Up next, we have a movie that's, I would say, different from eighth grade. Burning. I don't, I don't disagree with you there. <laughs> different is a good way to categorize this. There's not actually that much going on in this either, so I'll give broad strokes. Burning is about a guy in Korea who's dealing with a couple of circumstances. His dad has been arrested for assault, and so he has to take over his dad's farm, although all that's left of it is like one calf that somehow hasn't been given away while his dad goes through the legal system. And while all this is happening, he runs into a girl that he knew in childhood who he has since lost contact with. And the two of them reconnect. She is about to head out on a trip to Africa, but she asks him to watch her cat. This is based on a Murakami story, and there's always a cat to be watched (laughs) in a Murakami story. So he, while she is away is watching her cat and then when she finally is going to come home she asks him to come pick her up at the airport and she is not alone she has met this other guy Stephen yun while she was in africa they were the only two koreans at the airport when their flights were all delayed and so they have bonded with each other and he just sort of joins along and they go out to dinner and it's unclear to our main guy what's really going on between the two of them. Are they together? He had thought that he was going to have a romance going with her because they slept together before she left. And there's just sort of weird vibes <laughs> to Stephen Young's character. But he's like, okay, I guess this is happening now. And so then there's a series of kind of hangouts for the three of them. Every time he wants to hang out with her, Stephen Young is just also there. And they go out to get some coffee and they go to Stephen Young's place and he makes them food. And they both show up at our main guy's house and they all smoke weed and hang out and talk one night. And Stephen Young keeps dropping these little bits of weirdness into conversation with him. And by the time they're hanging out at his house, Stephen Young says he likes to go around and burn greenhouses because there are all of these abandoned greenhouses around the countryside. They're in very northern korea Mm -hmm. and so he says like every couple of months or so i go i find an abandoned greenhouse and i burn it to the ground and the (laughs) our main guy's kind of laughing like like really like uh, don't you think you're gonna get caught he's like i'm never gonna get caught because there's no reason for them to want to catch me because i'm doing them a favor right there's all of these greenhouses and they're just waiting for me to burn them and he says i've found my next greenhouse and it's very close to you So the main guy starts looking around his neighborhood at any various greenhouses to see if any of them are going to be burned down. Well, the girl disappears. It's happening sort of simultaneously is what I'm saying. He's looking at the greenhouses before he has noticed that the girl has disappeared. After the event at his house, he can no longer get in contact with the girl. She's not answering any of his calls. He can't find her. And then he starts to sort of, he shows up to confront Steven Yun and be like, hey, have you seen the girl? Because I haven't heard from her. And he's like, no, yeah, that's funny. I haven't heard from her either. And things are progressing. He's getting sort of more and more obsessed with Steven Yun because he's weird. And now he's the only connection to the missing girl. So he starts both checking all these greenhouses and none of them are burning down. He sees Steven Yun again and he asks him about the greenhouse. And he's like, oh, I burned that down immediately. <laughs> so it's just like weird overtones to all of his conversations. He's following Steven Yun around. He has this 
super recognizable work truck that he's following Steven Yun around town with. And he's like not very good at tailing him. Obviously, Steven Yun knows he's following. So there's various moments where he like almost gets caught. There's a time when he's near his house and Steven Yun calls him and is like, hey, are you in my neighborhood? And he knocks on his window and he's like, come on up. I'm having a party. So he <laughs> goes into his house and things start to really crystallize for him then because Stephen Yun now has a cat that he says that he found on the street and the cat that the girl had he had been taking care of but he'd never seen the cat because the cat was very shy but he knows the cat's name so while he's over at Stephen Yun's the cat escapes and he goes to help find the cat and he calls the cat by the missing girl's cat's name and he comes over it comes right over to him so he's like sure this is the girl's cat and in Steven Yun's bathroom when he was there the first time, he's snooping around and he found a box of makeup, which he thought was weird. And he also found a drawer that was full of women's accessories, like bracelets and stuff. And so then when he's here this time, he looks again and the girl's wristwatch is in the drawer. So he's like, all right, bye. I can't hang out anymore. I got to get out of here. <laughs> and he leaves. And the final culmination of it all is he has called Stephen Yun out to meet him kind of by one of the abandoned greenhouses and Stephen Yun walks over and our main guy immediately stabs him like really really stabs him and mm. puts his body in his car and sets it on fire and drives away and that's burning yeah I love this movie I had seen this one before I think you had not I have not I watched this movie a couple years ago in the recommendation my brother who I was talking to about Parasite and he was like, I loved Parasite, but what I really loved was this movie Burning. And I was like, you liked a movie better than Parasite? Than Parasite? He does. And I was that's like, that's wild. wild. I, I gotta watch this movie. And I did. And I also really love this movie. I don't know that I love it more than Parasite. I was gonna say, do you personally. love it more than Parasite? Not me. But it's it's not like a huge distance in how much I love them. But no, I don't love it more than Parasite. The thing that struck me was I think this movie has the tone and the tension and ambiguity that Todd Field was going for in Tar. Like I can see how Tar is trying to approximate the sort of quiet, strange tone, but it's not successful for me in Tar. And I think for a couple of reasons. One, Tar is much talkier. People are always talking about the subject matter in Tar, the yeah. cancel culture, what's going on. And in this movie, the themes are all clear and there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of elements that are interplaning, but they're having conversations like normal people would in their lives, right? It's all subtext. I think the management of tone is really masterful. And then the other thing that was that's weird about Tar is there are supernatural things that happen in Tar mm -hmm. and everything that happens in this movie could actually happen. There's weird things that happen in this movie. Like he keeps getting yeah. phone calls and no one's talking, but obviously- But then it kind of is, turns out it's his mother maybe. Yeah. You know, people can't remember what happened. There's this whole thing about like, was there a well near our house? Oh, did this thing happen? Oh, did that happen? But it's still grounded. You don't see anything where like, there's a ghost in the corner of the room in one frame, right? No. And it's just so much about, at one point, the main character, Jung Su says, the world is a mystery to me. And when you're looking at other people, you don't know their internality. And mm -hmm. Steven Yeun's character is so enigmatic. You're like, what is going on with this guy? He's very quiet. And the thing is, too, he's very, very wealthy. He lives yep. in this beautiful high-rise apartment, I think, in Gangnam. And this is not something we pick up on. This is something I read. But his accent is Americanized, which is unsurprising for Steven Yeun. But it's meaningful for the mm -hmm. film. And the main character refers to him as a Gatsby at one point. He's like, there's Gatsby's all over Korea now. And we don't really know what he does for a living. He just says he 
he does different things he won't say but yeah i think there's just like a lot of fascinating stuff happening in this movie i'm gonna give you a chance to talk before we move along but yeah at the end when he stabs him to death my first watch i was like oh wow okay (laughs) well because to build off what you're already saying it's super grounded it doesn't feel heightened and so Simon Yan is obviously very weird and yeah. uh, you get why he's suspicious of him and we'll get into the specific things he says and does that are so strange. But because it's so grounded, even as the evidence is building and he thinks that the cat is hers and he finds her watch, you still are in a place where like, am I really to believe that he has murdered this girl? <laughs> like it's just a normal group of people that are in their lives. And so then, yeah, when he stabs him, you're like, oh, damn, we're not leaving any room for maybe it was all a misunderstanding because it felt like it wouldn't have been insane for her to just show up at the end and be like, yeah, I told him to watch my cat. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Anything could have happened because there's just like unease and weirdness, but not a ton of specific information yeah yeah the thing i love about that is and this is is so interesting i was reading a number of views of it and people do really focus in on like is steven yun a serial killer is he not and i think what's under discussed is right as she's leaving their house she's clearly communicated that she has feelings for our main character that she did throughout her whole childhood he was cruel to her during their childhood but this whole well story about how she was at the bottom of a well and he saved her right like her relationship and he doesn't was really, even really remember it doesn't even remember it and then as she's leaving he's told Stephen Yoon that he's in love with her yeah but instead of telling her that he's in love with her as she's yes. in, he says something incredibly hurtful to her he calls her a whore yep Right. He says, why do you take off your clothes so easily in front of men? Because she's taken off her top while they're all together. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you're kind of in love with her because she took off her clothes and slept with you. Like, that seems to be what happened. And instead of you being vulnerable with her, what happens in your brain is like, I'm going to say something incredibly hurtful to this woman who's clearly kind of delicate. Right. Like we've seen her cry before. She seems to be struggling. And so he never grapples with the fact that she might disappear because he said something so hurtful to her. Right. Right. He doesn't process that at all. He's like, this other guy must have done it. And it's this classic nice guy, Chad situation Mm -hmm. that I think is, is really interesting. Yeah. I just, I really like that there's a world in which Stephen Young did nothing to her. (laughs) He has just been murdered by this guy. I think it's very possible. Well, and can we talk about his death scene? Because I'm obsessed with it. It's such a good, like, so intimate. It's always intimate when people are stabbing people because you have to be, like, so close for that to happen. But they're holding each other. It's like this embrace of death (laughs) when Mm -hmm. he's stabbing him. And Stephen Young is hugging him. And they're, like, looking into each other's eyes. And it's this his last moment. And he's having this connection with this guy. And it could mean fucking anything. You're like, what does this mean? It's so good. I loved his death scene. Yeah. Stephen Young is awesome. Stephen Young is so good in this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, part of it is it's just genius casting. Like Stephen Young is one of those types who feels like he's charming and personable and you you want to like him. It's very rare for a, him to not be likable in some way in his roles. And so you get why she became friendly with him. You, you want to be on his side. He seems like he should be cool. And from the very first dinner with him, she falls asleep. And then he just starts saying the weirdest fucking shit. Yeah. But you're like, it, but it's still ambiguous. It's like, maybe this guy just has a really dry sense of humor. 
Because he says at one point, she's crying, and he's like, I've never cried once in my life. (laughs) Yeah, he says, oh, it's so interesting to see people cry because I've never shed a tear in my life. And you're like, what? (laughs) He's like, I'm sure when I was a baby I did, but I don't remember it. And you're like, is he announcing to the world that he's a sociopath, or is he just like, this is kind of funny? Yeah, (laughs) it's a a weird sense of humor. It could go either way. Who's to say? (laughs) Because there really is... Like, you wouldn't be shocked if she decided, she, like, the guy she liked was mean to her. She was like, I can't deal with this. I've got to leave town. And she could have said to this guy, like, will you watch my cat? But don't tell Jiangsu where I've gone because I don't want to see him. And like. <laughs> yeah, that definitely could have happened. It's within the <laughs> realm of possibility. There's lots to like. I liked a lot of how it was shot. There's a great shot when he is tailing Stephen Yun through. I don't even know where they are. There's like industrial parts and then they're out mm-hmm. in the wilderness and he has followed him. He's abandoned his car and is on foot followed him to where Stephen Yan has parked his Porsche by like a beautiful lake vista. And he's just mm-hmm. standing there staring out at the wilderness thinking, God knows what. I guess you could be assuming he's like, this is where I will bury my next body. <laughs> or where he's like, like, looking it's at so a lake. beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, anything. <laughs> and so Jiangsu has snuck up on him and there's a hill that the car's on and then a little decline. And he has gotten so unreasonably close to him. He's just on the other side of his car. <laughs> Steven Yan could turn around at any time. But there's this great shot of the two of them in profile and all of that. And I was just like, it's just great. The whole like him following <laughs> him around is so comical because yes, he's in this extremely recognizable truck. But yeah, you just you're just following around watching Stephen Yun do normal things. Like he goes to the gym and it's like yeah. ominous. Or he goes but, to but church he sees with his family. Him outside. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, he's like working out and he sees Jongsu across the street and he's like, oh that's I'm not even sure he does though. Yeah, I guess they shoot Jongsu from inside yes. where he is. They yeah. You could read it as he sees him. Yeah, and then he goes to church with his family, and then he goes out to have a lunch with his family, and you're like, I don't know. Maybe he's just a normal guy with a weird sense of humor who maybe doesn't care too much about this girl that he met because he moves on to another girl pretty quickly, but that doesn't make him a serial killer. (laughs) Not necessarily. Yeah. The Ben character is really interesting. I was reading an interview with the director in Hollywood mm-hmm. Reporter. So one of the sort of thematic elements that's running through this movie is this question of class. So again, the Stephen Yun character is very rich mm-hmm. and the Jung Soo character is quite poor. And it's great, too, because he picks them up from the airport and then they go to that restaurant when they leave. Someone has dropped off his Porsche for him at the restaurant. Yeah, the guy so just this- followed them in the Porsche and yes. <laughs> left it here for him. And I think that's the first part where it becomes clear, like, okay, we're, we're two different types of guys. So mm-hmm. what Lee Chang Dong was saying about the role of Ben in, in the story, and again, why I think the ambiguity works, like, I think when movies are ambiguous, A, it can just be fun, right? Like, sure. it can be a fun twist. But also, you don't want it to undermine the themes of the film. So mm-hmm. any which way you could read the movie, it shouldn't undercut what's happening thematically. And so he says, whether Ben is a serial killer or just a cultured rich friend, the distinction is actually not that important. You see a lot of young people with money these days, they are disconnected from the other realities of human life that are in fact connected to their wealth and actions in this very complex way. Maybe they make money through real estate or fund management and the moment they type things on the keyboard, it may lead to mass layoffs or depriving many people of their own incomes. 
Meanwhile, to the people who actually make the money, they're just sitting behind a desk and tapping away on their keyboards. So everything just becomes a number and they don't even really carry a sense of guilt over the consequences of what they do. That's sort of the structure of the world and the lives that we live right now. I just wanted to suggest that this life that we pursue and want so much may not be the most appropriate one in its entirety. It may also be monstrous. So whether or not he's a serial killer or just a rich guy who's leeching off of everyone else, it's like kind of the same thing. You should still murder him. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Eat the rich. Eat the rich, baby. But yeah, I do think that embrace at the end is interesting because then if you're reading this movie through a gender lens of both of these men are terrible to Hamey, right? They're also kind of bonded by the fact that they are men (laughs) in a world where, according to Roma, women are always alone. Yes. Poor Hamey. She's a sad character. She is really sad. And she's so lonely. And the I, I really love the running thing of her telling the story about when she fell down the well and then he doesn't remember it. And so then when he sees her family, he brings up the well and they're like, there was never any well. What are you talking about? We didn't have a well on our property. And so you're like, okay, maybe she's just got this fanciful imagination. But then he sees his own mother and he asks about the well and she says, there was definitely a dried up well <laughs> on their property. That scene with his mom is so wild because they haven't talked in 16 years. And yeah. there's this running thing about women in particular being in credit card debt. And she's mm-hmm. come to tell him she's in this horrible credit card debt and she's barely paying attention to him. And you're just like, what a reunion. You're also pretty lonely, jong Su. This is a yep. sad situation. Yeah. It's a lot about loneliness. It is really interesting that he seems very solitary in the world. He doesn't have any connections other than her that we know of when we start the thing other than his dad Mm -hmm. who's going to jail. And then she clearly is super alone in the world. And then it's interesting that Ben seems to have all of these friends. He's constantly hanging out with these huge groups of people that he has then invited them along with. And that's sort of interesting that they're the only ones who have any, like the rich people are all hanging out and the poor people are like, I'm alone in the world. Although, again, he doesn't seem like super enthusiastic about anything. He's always yawning in his get-togethers. Mm-hmm. Although he's yawning, but then there also there's that same shot multiple times when Jong Su is there with all of his friends, and Jong Su makes eye contact with Ben, and Ben gives him this little like half smile, like yeah, hey, and you're like, what's going on with him? Exactly. <laughs> he might just be being on? friendly. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I was in a place and someone looked at me and I wasn't really talking, someone else was having me, I'd probably give them a small smile too, like hey, man. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> or it means everything. I it's really like good. it. Yeah, it's I really think good. it's well acted. I think Stephen Yoon in particular is great. I do think it's beautifully shot. And mm-hmm. yeah, the ending is is wild. I assume you didn't expect him to murder him at the end. Yes and no, I guess. When it got to the place where he was in Stephen Yun's house and looking through his potential trophy drawer and thinking that she had been murdered by him i was having this is this movie about to become really scary vibe <laughs> so what are we gonna like is i was expecting the thing that you usually get in those movies where he's rummaging around in the bathroom and he's like oh my god i found incriminating evidence and then steven young to be like banging at the door like you okay in there yeah <laughs> instead the girl shows up and then the cat gets loose and all of that goes on so i wasn't surprised that it led to kind of a violent place. I feel like there is this air of menace to a lot of what's going on. But yeah, it is interesting that he jumps right to the stab. I was surprised Stephen Yan walks over and you're like, oh, okay, what are we doing here? And he's just like, stab, stab, stab. <laughs> you're like, whoa, you're not even going to confront the man? 
Yeah. <laughs> no, he's, he's made up his mind. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I probably would have reported her missing and like asked the cops about this suspicious guy before I went straight to a stabbing. Yeah, I might have taken some other steps first. I don't know if he doesn't, you know, he feels like the cops wouldn't do anything because, again, there's like this class sure. issue happening, right? And that is also interesting in the burning greenhouses conversation. You know, he's like, aren't you worried you're going to get caught? And he's like, no, the cops won't do anything to me. Every two months, I find that's a good pace. Yeah. <laughs> And then, yeah, the conversation when he comes back and he's like, I checked all the greenhouses by my place and none of them were burned. He's like, well, I did burn one. You must have missed it. Maybe it was too close. <laughs> like there's this great, he must be referring to the girl, not the greenhouse yes. thing where it's like, it's really good. What a it's movie. Very good. I like it a lot. Okay. Next up is, oh, can you ever forgive me? So Can You Ever Forgive Me is based on a true story about this author, Lee Israel, who is a little down on her luck. She writes biographies, I think, primarily, and her last biography has not sold well. She has a difficult personality and has trouble keeping down other jobs. So she is struggling financially, which is most important because her cat is sick and she needs to be able to afford medicine for her cat, which honestly, very sympathetic. She ends up finding a couple of letters that were written. I forget who the author of the first set of letters that she actually finds are, but someone's personal letters and she takes them to booksellers to sell them. And she's able to get a little bit of cash for these letters that she found around the same time. She meets Richard E. Grant's character who she had met previously at some kind of society party. And he's a little, I don't know how to describe him. He's like a gadabout. He's just around town and they become friendly. And she basically determines that the best way for her to make money is to start forging these literary letters. So she is able to write in the voice of these other writers. She starts forging these letters and selling them all around New York City. But as she's selling more and more of them, people start to get suspicious about the provenance of some of these letters. Initially, she gets Richard E. Grant to start selling the letters, but then even that gets kind of dicey. And so what they decide to do is she will go to a place where they have letters, pretend she's doing research for a book, steal those letters and replace them with her forgeries. But it's too late. The walls are closing in. The cops are on to her. When Richard E. Grant tries to sell these letters, they're there and he rolls on her. And fair enough. To be fair, yeah. Also, while she's away, he's been watching her cat. The cat dies while she's away and she blames him. And so their friendship has a break anyway. And basically, you know, at her trial, she tells the judge she's not sorry at all. It was the best time of her life. And, you know, she feels like she should be appreciated for these great forgeries. But she ends up having house arrest and parole and she can just go to her job. She decides that she wants to write the story of what happened to her. She asks Richard E. Grant for his permission. At this point, he has AIDS and he's dying and he gives her permission to write the story. And that's sort of the whole movie. The very end, the button is, and this is true to life too, she's walking by a bookstore and she sees one of her own forgeries in the window being sold. And she at first walks in and is like, oh, tell me about this letter. Like, where'd you get it? And the guy, you know, gives her some lines. So she later writes him a letter basically to announce to him that it was a forgery and that it was her that did it. And so he goes to take it out of the window and then he's like, fuck it. And he leaves it in. <laughs> And yeah. her, a lot of her forgeries were still on the market for years later. Yes. 
I think they'd say some of them might still be in circulation yeah, and in places. Probably. So what did you think about Can You Ever Forgive Me? I really like it. It's based on a true story. She's a real woman. This really happened to. And it's very contained. It's basically a two-character story. But the relationship between the two of them is super interesting. She's basically a misanthrope, but they do enough to make you invest in her. I think the cat's very helpful, obviously. And it's just sort of an interesting story because it's about her artistic frustration. She can't write the books that she wants to write anymore because no one will give her an advance because she's so horrible to work with. She can't get a job. She achieves this level of creative fulfillment (laughs) through writing these letters. And she's doing this thing that's a crime, but who really cares about fake letters and the way that she ends up doing it is interesting where she's trying to sell these letters that are real and the people are like oh well yeah we'll take them but they'd be worth more if there was juicier stuff going on in the letter and so at one point i think she just like adds a ps with a funny little barb Mm -hmm. to one of the letters and sells it and they're like oh my god we love the postscript and so she gets in her head like if I just zhuzh up some stuff, people want funny. I'm giving the people what they want with their Noel Coward letter. (laughs) I love the scene in court when she's like, you know what? I don't feel bad about it because (laughs) I'm a better Noel Coward than Noel Coward. (laughs) She did a great job. It's just so interesting that really this was the best time in her life. She felt really good. She was getting to do what she loved and make money for it. And then there also is this flip side of even though I felt great doing it, I still wasn't being me, right? Like I was being Noel Coward and I was being whoever. And it's a little bit hollow. (laughs) It was really Mm -hmm. fun. (laughs) But, you know, I'm not going to be like remembered for my works. This is it. So it's tough. When her cat dies, I cried. And I think I teared up in her courtroom scene too, because it all just sort of comes to an end. And you're like, yeah, (laughs) this is it for you, buddy. It's rough. And I love her friendship with Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant is great. He is really good in this movie. What did you think of it? Yeah, I think her character is, it's really interesting how they handle her because she is categorically, right, an unlikable character. But I think they do a couple of things. One, there is the cat. It was funny, too, when I was watching this because her cat stops eating. And my immediate reaction is like, your cat's not eating. You need to take it to a vet. And a lot of times characters in movies don't do what you want them to do. But she does take it to the vet. And I was like, thank God. Every time the cat is on screen in this movie, I'm so worried it's going to die. <laughs> I know. Well, then also, like, I'm like, I don't know how good of a job you're taking care of your cat. Because if your cat is shitting under your bed that much, it means you're not taking care of its litter well, box sufficiently. I, I or it's having health problems. There's this great, like alone for decades at this point and her last meaningful relationship ended a long time ago she's been living in this apartment just her and the cat and she's really let everything go because she's been in this deep state of depression for however long and so there's a point where her landlord comes into her apartment while she's there with richard e grant she shows up well she tells the landlord she's having a problem with flies and she needs an exterminator so she's asked them to come into her apartment she ends up at the door with her tree grant and the landlord and there's this horrible smell in her apartment that she no longer even smells. And so the landlord is like, we can't do anything until this is taken care of. And there's this vulnerable scene where at first she kicks Richard E. Grant out and he's like it's fine I'll help you I'm here to help you and the two of them together clean out the like years of neglect from this apartment and it's so just sweet and human and such an interesting bond for the two of them and she has not been vulnerable with anyone in so long and she feels this bond and so then she's so betrayed later when she feels like he's the reason that her cat died but 
Yeah. I mean, it's not even clear that he is the reason the cat died. I don't think he is. He did feed the cat. We saw him feed the cat. And give it the medicine. Yeah. I think the cat might have just died. The cat was sick. Which is sad. I love that scene as well. That was a great scene of their friendship. I think the other thing this movie does is part of her problem is she's just not willing to play the game. There's this great scene where she goes to her agent's party, who's Jane Curtin. I did not know Jane Curtin was going to be in this movie when she showed up. I was like, ah! I had the same moment with Jane Curtin and with Anna Devere Smith, who plays her ex, and with Mark Evan Jackson, who plays her lawyer later. Every time when they showed up, I was like, (gasps) but yeah, it's just, it's one of these awful yuppie parties where people are just saying nonsense to each other. She walks by these two people, uh, this literary party, and the one woman says to the other, I mean, I find his distaste for linear plot structure downright macabre. (laughs) Like, what the fuck does that mean? It's so funny. (laughs) What does that mean? And so you can kind of understand like why she doesn't want to play this stupid game. Maybe I just understand it because I'm the same person. Yeah, she like takes a handful of food, shoves it in her purse and steals someone's coat from the coat check and gets out. You're like, I get it. I get why you don't want to just pretend along with these people who are just absolute nonsense. And then she's like really nice to her landlord's mother, but it doesn't seem for real gain. I mean, it does end up helping her out, but I don't think she's doing it for that reason. And then at the end of the movie, she has this conversation with Richard E. Grant when he's sick. And he's like, I think you're a really bad person. And she's like, I think you might be right. And I'm like, that's a. I mean, I think it's just an interesting way to handle unlikable character because so many other unlikable characters have convictions that they're not a bad person. You're like, I think you got to look at yourself. And it's another thing to be like, yeah, you know, I'm aware. (laughs) I'm aware that this is just how I am. And so I thought that was all very interesting. And yeah, all the forgeries are fun. The end courtroom scene where she's like, nah. I don't feel bad at all. And you're like, well, yeah. But that's very her, right? She, her, She's all about yep. not pretending. And I think you're right. You shouldn't forge things, but who's buying the letters of literary figures? Rich people. People yeah. who have too much money anyway. Well, it's not who harming anyone who can't afford it. <laughs> no one's spending their last dime on a Noel Coward letter, right? And I doubt she's cutting so much into the money that Noel Coward's <laughs> estate would be making that they're no. all going hungry. Yeah. I like it a lot. Great performance. Marielle Heller does a great job directing the film. I really like Marielle Heller. No, she's Heller. married to Yorma from The Lonely Island. I didn't know that. What an interesting couple. Yeah. Okay. Lastly, okay. not leastly, we've got Black Panther. Tell me about Black Panther. Okay. We've got your T'Challa, your Black Panther. Where we have just left him before this movie starts is his father has been killed. He has had to assume the mantle of the throne of wakanda and so he's dealing with that as all of this is happening we have in america i don't remember the order of this the flashback starts the movie okay so we've started the movie with this flashback where t'challa's father they're in oakland in a poor neighborhood they go to this guy's house it turns out that he is also a wakandan he's the brother of t'challa's father Yes, he's been living like undercover in American society. And it turns out that he's sort of been selling them out. The father is like, you have so disappointed me. I'm going to have to take you back to Wakanda so that you can face justice. Basically, his brother threatens his right-hand man friend character, and he kills his brother. And they basically take the body. They all abscond, get the hell out of there so people don't find out about their existence. And they have left in Oakland his kid. And so fast forward to now. We have more vibranium floating around through the world. We're trying to track it down. Uh, what's the name of Claw? 
Claw, that's his name, is the guy who is your stock bad guy who's acquiring the vibranium. And then we find out that he's working with Michael B. Jordan's character. Michael B. Jordan shows up in Wakanda. He has the identifying marker to show that he is of Wakandan ancestry. And most importantly, he has Claw's dead body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they let him in because of Claw's dead body. Now there's some tension because Michael B. Jordan is here to challenge T'Challa for the throne. They have the battle. He loses. He doesn't die, though. T'Challa gets thrown off a cliff. And so there's immediate changes because this guy's taken over. So now all of T'Challa's family is basically like out. They go to M'Baku to get some help because he's the only sort of third party in this arrangement and they think he'll want to fight this guy because he's an outsider and we shouldn't just let Wakanda be led by some American basically and uh, M'Baku is like hey you're never gonna guess who I found and he has T'Challa's body there on ice because he's he's not quite dead Mm -hmm. he's just nearly dead basically and they have managed to smuggle out this one the like flower that gives them the power of the Black Panther And so they give it to him. He is revived. And now they're going to go back and reclaim what's theirs. Well, the important change that Michael B. Jordan wants to make to how Wakanda is run is he wants to send out their weapons to conquer the rest of the world, whereas Wakanda has been very isolationist. So that's sort of like the main conflict. Yeah. Our main gang comes back to Wakanda or back to the main city. They have a big, huge battle. T'Challa does manage to stab Killmonger, but then it does end in a place where he has had to wrestle with the idea of it's probably our responsibility to do some good in the world because we have the ability to. So at the very end of the movie, he goes and he announces, actually, Wakanda is not some third world African country like you all think it is. We have much cooler shit than you and we're going to help you. I I don't love Black Panther as much as many people love Black Panther. So mm-hmm. I put this through in the first round. I think I actually prefer Sorry to Bother You to Black Panther, but I cannot underplay the cultural impact this movie had and i love the cultural impact this movie had i think it's really important Mm -hmm. both in terms of demonstrating that a a majority minority cast can be in a movie that makes a lot of money that was a very important thing to demonstrate and i just deeply appreciate that it really really resonated with people I also love that this ended up in a matchup with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse because of my running joke is yeah. like Black Panther is not even the best movie about a black superhero from this year. And that's the movie it's mm. up against. But there are definitely things I really like about this movie. I think, as always, in the MCU, the casting is pretty good. Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa mm-hmm. is obviously great. And that was, you know, a big loss when he passed away. I think Denai Guerrero as Okoye is great. She's, I think, one of the great MCU characters. I love her. I'm a big fan of M'Baku. Sterling K. Brown has a small role as the father of Michael B. Jordan in this movie, but I think he's also great. Love the mm-hmm. production design and the costumes. The visuals are all great. Well, not all the visuals. There's some issues with the special effects, but it's not really the fault of the movie. That final fight it's scene, yeah, there were issues with the... the- coming down to the wire. Yeah, I think a lot of people got pulled off this movie to work on Infinity War. So it's really Disney's fault, not Coogler and the team's fault. Yeah. But the stuff that is realized is stunning. I think I just have a hard time with some of the story beats in this movie. And also, 
I don't find Killmonger as compelling as I think a lot of people do. And so then the movie doesn't function quite as well for me. And we can get into all of that, but I want to let you give your overall thoughts. I mean, I echo most of that, obviously. Cast is amazing. It looks beautiful, except for the little bit of jankiness. I have an issue primarily with Daniel Kaluuya's character. Yeah, he's a problem. (laughs) I actually do really like Killmonger, and I find him to be an interesting villain, and I find his connections to to T'Challa to be really interesting. And I really like T'Challa wrestling with his memories of his father and having to confront this horrible thing that his father did. I love that as a through line, and the scene where he confronts his dad, I really love. I think the acting's really good. I just, I wish the Daniel Kaluuya part made more sense because there's so much about it that I really, really like. But the Daniel Kaluuya thing is like a pretty significant flaw. It just doesn't make any goddamn sense that he abandons his wife and his best friend for this guy that he's just met when it's like, get a hold of yourself, man. (laughs) The fact that he's thinking about abandoning his relationship with his wife and the two of them are on opposite sides of the conflict with each other at the end and they're gonna like physically fight each other like (laughs) rein it in bro what are you thinking yeah no that's a problem to me it doesn't make sense that you would have a lifelong friend and you would say to them i really need you to do this and they would come back and say i really really tried this is not the last time i'm going to try try again but i just wasn't able to do it and you just looking like I wash my hands of you. It's over. I don't care that like extending <laughs> circumstances. How dare you fail me this one time? And it's like, yeah, I don't know, guy. That's not really cool of you. It's not like he did it on purpose. No. And if they had seen it in more of an ideological dispute mm-hmm. between the two of them where he was more radicalized and the stuff Michael B. Jordan was saying was like, this makes a lot of sense to me because I've been saying this for years. Like if that had been more of a part of it, sure. then you could kind of see. But He just immediately drops him for seemingly (laughs) no reason. He's a really bad friend and husband. I mean, the friend thing is crazy, but the husband thing, like, I don't understand it at all. (laughs) The fact that he's going to, like, physically get onto a war with his wife. (laughs) No. So yeah. What are you thinking? I have a really hard time, and I don't think the, the movie tries to kind of explain this, but I don't think they do a sufficient job of explaining why they would leave the nephew behind in Oakland, and it's such a fucked up thing to do. Like, it's so horrible, mm-hmm. and the dad's explanation yeah. is, like, totally insufficient. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That's a difficulty I have with the film. And then the thing with Killmonger that doesn't quite work for me is... He's not that dissimilar from Magneto as a character, but I think what makes Magneto compelling is his personal relationship with Professor Xavier, right? They started together and then they diverged and they continue to have this care for each other, right? So they continue to be connected, but Mm -hmm. they just have this ideological difference. And because Michael B. Jordan is just coming into all of these dynamics, there's no personal element to the conflict. And I was trying to think if there was another way they could have handled this, but I wonder if the reason maybe they didn't have them bring him back to Wakanda and then he finds out that his dad was killed by the king and then he leaves or something like that is it becomes too close to the Loki-Thor relationship and they didn't want to replicate that. Yeah. I actually, I don't want to stop you when as you're on your roll, but for me, I kind of like it because it's more like he's the opposite side of the coin of T'Challa in terms of T'Challa could be him if he had been the one who had been left to be raised in this other place by these other people and blah, blah, blah. It's sort of like a 
what may have been. T'Challa needs it because he's so in his own circumstances that even when his love interest is telling him, you have to look to these other people and see what you can do for them. He's so insulated from it because he's like a prince (laughs) in a really wealthy place that he's never even had to actually wrestle with what it is like to be from somewhere else. And I, it is a good confrontation for him in a way where they kind of feel simpatico. There's a respect between them because they feel not that dissimilar to each other, except in circumstances. What in the movie indicates that to you? That's just how I read the structure of it. Like the characters feel like opposite sides of a coin to each other narratively. Well, I guess what I'm asking is I don't necessarily see T'Challa's recognizing that if, oh, I'd grown up in different circumstances, this could have been me. I don't know if he articulates that. I don't know if he's articulating. Okay. I thought you were saying he articulates that. I think that is what he's wrestling with, right? Because he's confronted with this guy. He's always idolized his father. That's been the main driving force in his life up until this point. I love the difference between the two scenes when he goes to the ancestral plane and he has the first moment with his dad that's just sort of beautiful and loving and his dad being like, no one's ever ready, but you're, you know, you have to just sort of go for it and become the king. And then he gets to go back again after he's learned all of this stuff and he's really grappling with the idea that his dad isn't such a wonderful figure. And so he just is connected to the story of Killmonger. He really is emotionally affected by the fact that his dad would do something so horrible. I think it's about him, you know, putting himself in the the shoes of someone else in a way he's not had to do before. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the dad did something fucked up, but I don't necessarily feel like that next step of, oh, this could have been me, is there in the movie. So the other issue with Killmonger then for me, other than the lack of the personal connection between the two characters, so I'm like less invested in their conflict because there isn't that emotional component to it, is he's just too far, right? I think the Lupita Nyong'o character is interesting and she's saying some compelling things and she's in the middle. But I don't think the movie's really commenting on the fact that what he is advocating for is white supremacy. And obviously his training is coming from the United mm-hmm. States. Yeah. No one is articulating that to me in the movie. And like, I don't know, but when a character is like, we'll kill people and all their children, I'm like, I just can't get on board with this character. Well, you're not supposed to get on board with the character. But people find him compelling. And I'm like, this is not compelling. And also, like, I don't understand how it's actionable. Like, he says at one point, didn't life start on this continent? Are all people your people? There are people who look like us. We're going to go and armed all oppressed peoples. Who is oppressed enough to get armed is my question. Well, I mean, a dictator always decides. But he's making a full list. The plan is very unclear to me of what he's actually trying to accomplish and what he thinks the end goal of the, the thing is. And I'm not saying the movie has to do that. I'm just explaining to you why I don't find him to be a compelling villain. Sure, 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 sure. I think that is 100% fair. And part of what I like about the movie is that I do find the villain compelling. So I totally get that if you don't find the villain compelling, it works less for you. I just wish either the plan was more fleshed out or he wasn't so extreme. One of those two things would make him Mm -hmm. work better for me. And also, honestly, Michael B. Jordan's performance is a little uneven for me. I like him in the more intense moments. But in that opening scene in the museum, I find his performance kind of flat. I will also say, okay. sure, he doesn't totally work for me as a character, which is a tertiary issue in this film. I think that's a place where the comedy in the film yeah. really doesn't land. Other issues I have with this movie, I found Forrest Whitaker's death not particularly affecting because I don't think they do enough to establish his character or his relationship with the other characters. Sure. Oh, one thing also that I think could potentially help was 
when he shows up and he's like, I challenge you for the throne, right? They're like, it's going to take weeks to set up the challenge. Get all the people assembled. Yeah. I think the movie could have benefited from them taking some time to set up the challenge where he's in Wakanda and can either like build his relationship with Daniel or flesh out the debate with T'Challa about what's the thing to do or some of the other characters. I think the movie could have benefited from a little bit more time to flesh out the complexity of what exactly he wants to do or what he thinks he's trying to achieve. And that might have helped as well. I don't know if they were like butting up against cuts, but the movie, how long is this movie? Two hours and 15? Yeah, 2.15. Long enough for yeah, a superhero But I mean, movie. some of them are a little bit longer, like add in 15 minutes in that section to give him some time to get to know Wakanda and either have these conversations with the characters. I think that's a really interesting idea. I, I think like it could have really addressed some of the, the issues that I have. So yeah, I don't love Black Panther. It's not anywhere near my favorite MCU movie. I don't really revisit it. But I, more than anything, appreciate the cultural impact of the film. Yeah, I like it. Oh boy. Four second round losers. This was fun. Lots of good movies. And then some debate about Black Panther. How exciting. So should we talk about, since this was an eight nominee year, what our top eight would be? Yes, we should. We might do our top five next episode, but we should think through if the top eight that made it through the first round, all things being equal, would these actually be our top eight? Where are you? I don't think these specifically would be my top eight because we've lost some ones that I really love in the last round. It is hard, though, because it's lots of good movies. I probably... I'm looking back to be like, which of the ones from the last round do I feel compelled to elevate? I want Death of Stalin. And I want, maybe I, oh, this is very difficult. I can tell you my top eight. <laughs> tell me your eight. Well, I'm keeping Burning. I'm keeping mm-hmm. Spider-Man of the Spider-Verse, which made it in the next round. I'm keeping If Beale Street Could Talk, which made it in mm-hmm. the next round. I'm keeping Eighth Grade. And I'm keeping Paddington 2. But I am taking mm-hmm. from the first round into my top eight. Roma, The Death of Stalin, and Sorry to Bother You. And you're losing, can you ever forgive me, Black Panther? The favorite. And, okay. I probably would lose, can you ever forgive me, and Black Panther. I would keep the favorite. I love the favorite. So maybe I'm only bringing Death of Stalin and Roma. Mm, Losing Sorry to Bother You. I feel bad losing Sorry to Bother You. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I feel like this is such a good place to be in, like to struggle to pick. Yeah, not bad. Top eight. But you know what? We don't have to stick to eight. Why I can't don't know, we have we ten? Set up this bracket. You told me top eight. But I was doing yeah. that because there were eight. But you know, there could be ten. Was our conversation from the be beginning 10. of the last episode? There could always be ten. Why shouldn't I let? Sorry all to right. bother you. Come through and Black Klansman. Sure. Bring them all on. <laughs> it's a good crop of films 2018 was working hard good job guys filmmakers of 2018 you nailed it okay nailed it so we have to talk about what we're talking about next time we're still talking about more of this i'll tell you what the semis are right now Mm -hmm. semi number one if beale street could talk versus spider-man into the spider-verse second semi paddington 2 Versus the favorite. This is fascinating. All right, I'm excited for these conversations.
in the meantime, before we get to that, if you have thoughts about anything we've discussed today or anytime, you can reach us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 